Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. Shen Brinkart to give a talk. Um, as we know, Shen is, um, should I say, the critical theorist. Um, he has been working on areas like um, cosmopolitanism, dialectics, um, tyrannic side, climate change, justice, so on and so on. Um, he's come today with a very interesting topic, which is targeting heads of government, a historical analysis of an, uh, American foreign policy and international assassination, which is a more um, radical, physical, and sometimes more efficient way to get things done. So I think the right mode with the right suit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll give it to you. All right, thanks for that introduction. Thanks for coming and enjoying your lunch. Um, the talk goes for about 40 minutes, um, so the details are pretty brief. Uh, anything that I miss, um, just ask me in question time and I can clarify. And the slides are there, obviously, as a guide as I move pretty quickly through everything. It's not a complex paper, but there's just a lot of material to get through. This is the third iteration of the paper. Other outings have been um, not well received, I guess you could say that. Um, it's a bit controversial. I don't think so now, but we'll see. So feedback is really welcome. Um, I'm about to send this to Perspectives on Politics, uh, so hopefully sometime on the weekend. So um, constructive comments really welcome, critical ones less so, but I will hear them. Um, and to clarify, I might be using uh, quote marks like this to indicate when I'm quoting somebody. It's not, uh, not um, using scare quotes or being pretentious. It's just so um, you know I'm quoting somebody rather than my own words. All right, so the paper looks to um, the problem of assassinating foreign heads of government in American foreign policy, uh, and especially looking at why Hussein and Gaddafi um, have been targeted openly for the first time in, in liberal international order. So the paper's divided into three sections. Uh, the first offers an historical examination of America's uneasy relation um, with the norm prohibiting attacks on heads of government, and with a particular focus on the Church Committee of 1975. The second part looks at the two case studies on the attacks on Hussein in 2003 and Gaddafi in 2011. And the third part, I develop a hypothesis sort of based on historical precedents and theory um, for why America might be um, now targeting foreign heads of government, even though it appears it's not in their long-term interests. And I speculate in the conclusion about what this might mean for um, the future of world order. So prohibiting um, assassinating heads of government uh, is a foundational pillar of, of modern world order established in the Treaty of Westphalia in Section 8, which declared the sovereign never can or ought be molested. And there's a definitive prescription against targeting heads of government from the UN Charter in Article 1 on intervention. Uh, and during peacetime, the prohibition uh, falls under an array of legal instruments and laws related to aggression, intervention and terrorism. Probably the most important of these is the New York Convention that criminalises assassination on internationally protected persons, so heads of government when they're uh, in the jurisdiction of signatory states. And of course, all states criminalise murder. Uh, during wartime, uh, the prohibition on assassination was first codified in the Brussels uh, Declaration of 1874 and then in the Oxford Manual 1880, and these informed the Hague and Geneva Conventions, all of which um, banned assassination as an act of, of, of perfidy. So international law is quite clear in my book. You can't kill a head of government, um, regardless how you might try to politically argue around that. Um, so according to Archigos, um, which is the award-winning data set on leaders, uh, this prohibition seems so... 
uh, robust that only 12 heads of government have been assassinated by a foreign state between 1875 and, uh, and 2015. And I'm putting up this table very hesitantly. Sorry, it's a bit uh, small. Um, but this table has tended to stir deep emotions in audiences before, so I'm only using it as indicative, and all my many caveats are given in that fine print there, which conveniently you can't read. Um, but, but I don't want to get into bogged down into these details, because it's not um, perfect, that table, by any means. Um, Jones and Olkins also has a data set on internal uh, assassinations, and that shows that um, assassinations undertaken by domestic actors are far more common, um, happening at least uh, two out of every three years since 1950. Um, and by way of comparison, um, I gained access to Eisner's data set, uh, very interesting data on patterns of regicide in Europe between 600 and 1800 AD, uh, and that shows that there was at least 40 sovereigns killed um, by foreign involvement during this period. Um, these attacks peaked in the 15th century, so just before, around before Westphalia, uh, Byzantium was the biggest offender. Uh, and the usual MO was inviting the king around for peace talks and then stabbing him in the back. So once again, Game of Thrones has got nothing on, on real history. Um, so turning back to modern international order, so even in the periods where we see increased intensity on, of attacks on foreign heads of government during the Cold War, so between uh, 1960 and 63 for the US, where they were involved in, in at least four attempts, um, and 78 and 79 for the USSR, where they took out uh, Rubai and Amin. Um, it was only the assassination of Amin that was done overtly, and that was after a number of secret attempts had, had sort of failed. Um, so the problem seems to be that whilst this prohibition on targeting, on not targeting um, uh, foreign heads of government is based on international law and a long uh, period of customary practice, um, recent events seems to be challenging this norm. So the first is indirect, and that regards the state-sponsored uh, surge in state-sponsored or extrajudicial killing. So that includes the 4,000 or so targets killed in the US drone program, uh, the expansion of kill lists publicly, not just by the US, but also by the UK and Israel. Israel had the first one of these openly. And all of these sort of indicate a general weakening of usual liberal um, uh, prohibitions on extrajudicial killings because they contravene uh, due process and fair trial, but also on covert operations that have shown to be um, uh, a key form of restraint for conflict escalation. And the second challenge, and the primary focus of the paper, is the direct challenge to the norm, and that's the opening targeting of heads of government by foreign states, specifically Hussein and Gaddafi, and I'll go through these in the case studies. So these strikes on Hussein and Gaddafi, I argue, um, constitute the first targeted attacks take, undertaken by a foreign power against a head of government openly, that is, with attempts to legitimise and justify these strikes uh, publicly, and they're the first of its kind in liberal international order. And this is a pretty bold claim, but I think my history stack is, is true on this point. I have to recall Hitler had been spared assassination, Napoleon had been imprisoned twice, Idi Amin, the Shah, Batista, Fernando Marcus, all of these figures died in exile, sometimes living to ripe old ages. Um, dictators since the so-called Pinochet precedent have all been tried. Um, and you could possibly say, I think, that the post-Nuremberg international order has been built on the idea of legally prosecuting heads of government and, and state leaders uh, instead of just taking them out. Um, and this can be seen in the impetus behind the formation of the International Criminal Court um, that tries to uh, prosecute those suspected of human rights violations or of aggression. 
um, and also in the Milosevic and Charles Taylor trials. So the problem for me is what has changed at the beginning of the 21st century for the open targeting uh, of heads of government to be seen as appropriate and practical by the world's leading superpower and its allies. That was good dramatic music for the, for the question. <laughs> um, so first turning to American foreign policy. Um, basically, and at least formally, US foreign policy and the army has been consistent with the prohibition. So from 1863 and its Liber Code and General Order Number 100, um, it prohibited assassination, calling it a relapse into barbarism, and was in line with the Hague Conventions. But we know that it's continued to be uh, involved in assassination plots in both times of war and peace. Seven of the 12 examples on that controversial Archegos um, table um, involved the US. Uh, and in the 50s, covert op um, assassination operatives by Truman and Eisenhower in Guatemala, um, the CIA book on assassination, which is available now on the internet and was pretty funny reading. Um, the Vietnam Phoenix pro program that killed about 30,000 Viet Cong leaders uh, and the CIA leaked uh, Dirty Tricks book. Sort of, These were all precursor to the formation of a senatorial investigation called the Church Committee um, that was, um, was to investigate widespread allegations at the time uh, that the US government had been involved in assassination plots to kill foreign heads of government. So it investigated five of these, uh, Castro, Diem, Lumumba, uh, Trujillo and General Schneider, who was protecting Allende at the time. Its findings are quite fascinating reading, um, but I won't go into that. But essentially the findings were that the US government uh, had perceived assassination as permissible in certain circumstances, that there was a preeminent role for the CIA uh, in such activities, that the US had supported a number of plots to kill foreign leaders, um, but importantly, that there was no direct ever there was no ever direct involvement of the U.S. Um, other than occasionally supplying small arms in some of the cases to the actual assassins, or providing intel and, of course, overall ideological support. Um, but which is basically all an assassin needs really is small arms and, and intel. But um, the findings on the issue of assassination were clear. Um, it said that short of war, assassination is incompatible with American values, uh, with American principles, sorry, international order and morality. But there is another key passage in the interim report, and it's where, the, where they distinguished uh, deliberately between assassination plots initiated in the interests of the US government that it rejected and those that involved US assistance as requested by foreign dissidents oppressed by tyranny, um, which they saw as valid. And the quote's on the slide up there. And what it does is essentially license intervention by directly universalising American values and those of liberal internationalism more broadly um, and America's own historical example, or historical experience rather, of fighting foreign tyranny uh, in its own revolutionary period, so against uh, King George. Uh, and through this, assassination becomes a legitimate tool of foreign policy when it's part of assisting those oppressed by tyranny, at least for the committee. And it's exactly with this find of logic that we see in the cases of Hussein and Gaddafi when I'll get to those. And Senator Church was very clear on this. He said the ban on assassination was not talking about Adolf Hitler or anything of that character or when the life of the Republic is endangered. So the legal outcomes of the Church Committee were fairly mixed. Um, it called for a legislative ban by Congress, um, but what happened instead was an executive order, order by President Ford. 
and that's been subsequently adopted uh, but modified by every president. Uh, the problem being executive orders are quite weak, and the legal specifics I won't go into here. Um, whilst they have the um, power of law, the president can repeal them at any time. Um, they can also do so secretly. Um, they can be overruled by Congress. The Supreme Court can also um, declare them unconstitutional. So they're not really a ban. They're more like you know, guidelines. Um, and essentially, after the September 11 attacks, President Bush rescinded the, the previous executive order banning assassinations. And at this time, the CIA created what was called the what is called the Special Operations Organization, which is um, designed to act with um, speed on high-value targets. And this is where the first kill list of terrorists um, was created. Um, Obama has since used the drone program extensively. Probably the most important one was the um, killing of um, Awalaki in Yemen, um, and that was the first strike of its kind against a US citizen undertaken without any judicial process. So regardless of the executive orders and the, the presidential ban, um, I think it's pretty clear that the US has uh, substantial capacity for covert actions of assassination. Um, let's turn now to the cases. Um, firstly, Hussein. Um, Israel had plans on um, Hussein in operations Bramble Bush 1 and 2 because of uh, Hussein's Scud missile attacks. The second one went beyond planning and into training, but there was a training uh, mishap and five commandos died when they accidentally used a, a live missile instead of a fake one. Um, so, those, so they were called off. Um, but even in the Gulf War in 91, um, the prohibition on not targeting heads of government was still upheld publicly very strongly by the US. So Bush Sr. refrained from stating that Hussein should be killed or even targeted, even though he said it would be convenient if he died. Um, Air Force Chief Duggan was actually fired for, for claiming decapitation strikes were, um, uh, were appropriate in the context of the war. Uh, and Secretary of Defence at the time, Dick Cheney, um, which is sort of laughable now given what happens in the future, but at the time he explained why he fired Duggan was, uh, we do not talk about targeting of specific individuals who are officials of other governments. Um, this denial is sort of not really believable because they had actually developed a special bomb, the GBU-28, which they codenamed the Satomizer, to actually um, take out his bunkers. And there are reports that I haven't been able to confirm that they actually um, tried to strike at his convoy as it was um, crossing a desert. Um, so despite these possible infractions of the, of the prohibition, um, the, it was still so well entrenched that by 1993, um, when the US um, undertook retaliatory airstrikes against Iraq, um, when plans had shown that they were planning to kill President Bush Sr. in his retirement, um, they were very conscious to direct these attacks at intelligence buildings rather than Hussein personally. Uh, in '95, the FBI actually undertook uh, a secret investigation into the CIA for trying to murder um, Hussein. Um, and even though the US tried to foment a, a military coup using domestic forces in Iraq in July '96, um, there were no plans to kill Hussein. So I think the strength of the prohibition in the, in the, in the 90s um, really highlights the alarming ease by which it was sort of eroded following the September 11 attacks. Um, supposed intelligence in early 2002 that we know now was erroneous suggested Hussein had links to terrorist cells but was also pursuing an illegal weapons program. So by June, um, Bush Jr. had already given authority to the CIA and special forces to use lethal force against um, Hussein. 
um, but only if they were acting in self-defence when they were trying to capture him, and this was so it wouldn't breach um, Bush's own executive order on assassination. Um, but on the eve of the Iraq invasion, Bush approved um, overt decapitation strikes on Hussein um, as a means of saving lives by bringing the war to a quick end. Uh, and there was little or no protest. And so this led to the first open and public strikes against the head of government. So there were three of these attempts, March 19, when they dropped uh, four bunker uh, buster bombs and 40 Tomahawk cruise missiles at a compound at Dora Farms where Saddam was supposed to be meeting his sons. Then April 7th, when US warplanes dropped four bombs uh, on a house in Al-Mansur in, Al in Baghdad, again on intelligence that he, Saddam was meeting his sons. 18 civilians were killed in that strike. Um, and on April 10, in a building that was very near Saddam's palace in Baghdad. So whilst all of these assassination <coughs> attempts were unsuccessful, the precedent had been set that a head of government could be um, taken out. Gaddafi was a little different. Um, MI6, Mossad and France apparently had all plans at various stages to take out Gaddafi, but none were actually undertaken. Um, back in 1985, uh, US policy was still consistent with the prohibition on not targeting heads of government. Reagan explicitly rejected um, taking out Gaddafi. Um, but following the bombings at a Berlin discotheque uh, in 1986, he did order raids, uh, air raids as a response to what he called an ongoing pattern of attacks by the government of Libya. Now, he denied they were going out to kill Gaddafi, um, but his niece was killed in the strike. Um, Reagan actually had a second speech made up just in case Gaddafi was killed in the attack, and half of the planes were sent to, con to attack um, what they called command and control, which meant Gaddafi, really, because he was head of the army. Um, and this was the same phrase that they sort of used in 2011. But even here, I think the links which... Reagan went to, to uphold the ban on assassination uh, and the normative prohibition on not targeting a head of government demonstrate the ongoing robustness of the prohibition at the time. Um, but reports on the possibilities of mass atrocities in 2011, in, uh, in early 2011, um, would change this and provide a certain pretext to challenge the prohibition on targeting heads of government even more. And this time it wasn't a unilateral U.S. action, but under U.N. Security Council Resolution 1973. Uh, and the aims of that, of 1973, were an immediate ceasefire and cessation of all um, violence on civilians. So in conformity with the new doctrine of the responsibility to protect. And the, the ghosts of Kosovo and Rwanda were definitely in firm view. But it was, quote, not to topple Gaddafi's regime, let, let alone assassinate him. It was to be a no-fly zone for the protection of civilians and bringing about a ceasefire. Indeed, it said nothing of targeting actual ground forces either. But the US did attack Gaddafi, and the first strike of the war was another decapitation attempt, that, just like we saw in, the, in Iraq. That is, the first strikes in Operation Odyssey Dawn on the 20th and 21st of March targeted Gaddafi's known residence at the Azizia compound. Now, this is the same compound that they attacked in 1986, I was lucky to find an aerial of this. As before, it contained a military barracks, um, but those are also where Gaddafi lived, his palace, his monument, and the place where he saw foreign dignitaries. So it's, whilst it's big, it does show the grounds are clearly marked out. Somewhat ironically, on the 1st of May, which we saw the biggest strikes on Gaddafi um, to date, the BBC actually ran a story saying that uh, Azizia 
only had old, light, anti-aircraft guns towed by trucks, and there was possibly one bunker there as they saw an air vent. So it was sort of hardly the high-tech command hub that was being, that was being made out to be, I think. So early on, though, there was definitely a disconnect between the political and military leadership of the intervention. Politicians were fairly open that it meant regime change. So Obama said, we can't stand idly by when a tyrant tells his people there will be no mercy. Cameron was more forthright. He called him a tyrant. And that the Libyan opposition has expressed a clear and overwhelming wish for Gaddafi to go. And we agree with that, too. But interestingly, at the time, the Pentagon, US military and the UK army failed to see regime change as part of the mandate uh, and refused to see Gaddafi as a legitimate target. But what changed, there are at least three really important factors. The first was the contact group, which in early April declared that Gaddafi must leave power and which NATO came to strongly endorse. So the contact group um, are quite, uh, quite interesting because it has a number of organisations, but the African Union was not invited. Um, the other second key point was uh, Ban Ki-moon's agreement that there was a humanitarian crisis which sort of conferred legitimacy on these reports that were coming out at the time that Gaddafi was using rape as a tool of war, that he was using mercenaries and human shields, all of which have, haven't really been proven yet. Um, and most importantly was the transitional National Council's commitment to regime change. So on the same day when these attacks happened, it rejected a, a ceasefire that had been brokered with the African Union um, because it didn't um, make sure Gaddafi would actually leave power. And so all of this meant that for the mission, for the NATO's mission to be successful, um, it could only succeed if Gaddafi left or died or was captured. Um, and under this, NATO interpreted the resolution 1973 um, as, as meaning regime change. Uh, and they targeted uh, specific command and control nodes, which meant strikes on the commander-in-chief were okay. So on the 30th of April and 1st of May, reports had Gaddafi um, at a villa um, visiting his son, uh, just an hour appearing after on TV. So they launched missiles attacks on that target and two other um, targets close to the television building. They killed his son and three of Gaddafi's uh, children. These were the first deaths in the, in the intervention. Uh, then again on the 12th of May, just hours after Gaddafi had been shown on TV again, uh, a couple of journalists were killed. Then there was a lot of strikes between the 21st and the 24th of May on the same compound. Uh, by the end of July, Gaddafi was underground um, in an effort to dodge potential airstrikes, uh, and the conflict was sort of at an end um, as Tripoli fell and Gaddafi was ousted from his compound on the 23rd of August. Uh, there was resolution uh, 2009 by the Security Council, which seemed that the threat of um, uh, eminent mass atrocities was over, given it was all about the responsibility to rebuild. Um, but Gaddafi was still targeted, and interestingly here, the, the Transitional Council placed a bounty of $2 million on Gaddafi's head and promised amnesty and that reward for anyone that killed him. Um, and NATO provided uh, reconnaissance and intelligence on that mission, and the US offered its drones. Um, so finally, when Gaddafi did flee CERT in October, um, it was a US drone that targeted his convoy, uh, and they later acknowledged this strike contributed to his capture. Um, videos taken before his death were quite gruesome, showing him captured and wounded, and there was also torture involved. Um, and the picture up there is of a journalist who tracked down the famous golden gun um, that was supposedly used to kill him. Um, and Hillary Clinton that night said, we came, we saw, he died. Um, so.
Um, so, finally, my hypothesis to why the US has breached this prohibition on not targeting heads of government. So there are a host of reasons why the US shouldn't be targeting a foreign head of government. It renders all leaders unsafe. Sovereign protection is the founding principle of international order. But I think most of all, the US actually gains a comparative advantage relative to other states and non-state actors because of their superior force and how they are more effective in thwarting conventional attacks rather than those of, of would-be assassins. So America's sort of breach of the norm here seems puzzling, counterintuitive, at worst sort of irrational, um, and at best a miscalculation. Um, but the explanation I've come up with is that they have... Um, has shifted toward an open in targeting because, firstly, um, as, a, as a perceived threatened state, it deems assassination as effective against specific types of regimes, um, those with a narrow uh, and hierarchical leadership, uh, so both terrorist cells and states dominated by tyrants or dictators um, to ensure its security. Uh, that as a democratic state, it deems assassination as legitimate against a specific types of tyrannical or authoritarian regimes and actually receives um, domestic gains in its normative legitimacy in doing so. Uh, and as a liberal imperial power, it deems assassination as effective to protect its strategic interests in the maintenance of liberal international order as a whole and also gets legitimate gains in legitimacy in doing so as well. So I'm not saying these factors alone um, come up with a sole explanation for the cases, but rather they identify some of the most significant causal factors for why the US has openly breached prohibition. Um, so given US military preponderance, one would assume America would be um, the one upholding the prohibition on not targeting heads of government most keenly. But I think the emergence of non-traditional threats like terrorists, um, but also the increasing belief that state leaders should be held accountable for their actions, um, has led to what some have described as the crisis of coherence of the norm of assassination. And the question becomes whether the prohibition on assassination still continues to reinforce the position of great powers relative to other states and non-state actors. So here, regimes like Iraq uh, and Libya that revolve around a centralised structure are highly susceptible to um, a succession crisis that's likely to result um, by taking out one of their leaders. Um, and without friends in the international community to sort of counter this strategic benefit, Hussein and Gaddafi were rendered highly vulnerable. Uh, and I think the drone program and kill lists um, of terrorist cells are symptomatic of this strategic gain also. And here um, Rome provides sort of an historical example. Uh, when it was strong, it had a strong... Uh, in the early Rome, it had a strong aversion to assassination at the height of its empire. Um, but during the mid-3rd to early 7th centuries, when it was in decline, um, Rome had to get in with new, new threats that were actually vulnerable to assassination. The most famous of these attempts is on Attila the Hun, who had just defeated them openly in battle a couple of times um, and could only be really dealt with effectively through assassination. And we see other examples in Venice between um, 1415 and 1525 against rival families and pirates. Uh, and probably most interestingly, though I haven't done the research yet on this one, um, between Philip II of Spain and Queen Elizabeth, um, who openly solicited assassins as well. So I think the nature of American democracy is another key factor for understanding these attacks on Hussein and Gaddafi. So America's history is obviously, uh, it perceives itself to be born on deeds of popular insurrection against tyranny and the Constitution empowers the oppressed to overthrow tyranny. Um, there's that Jeffersonian spirit of the right to alter or abolish government. 
And so as a democracy, I think the US obtains a range of domestic gains in its legitimacy at home by opposing tyrannical regimes abroad. And here I turn to classical, classical Athens. Um, I'm not claiming there's a likeness, but it's rather their shared sort of ideological comportment um, that their self-identification as democracies actually provides for justifying assassination when it's used against regimes that are considered undemocratic. So during the age of the age of tyrants, um, in Athens there emerged a certain idealisation of tyrannicide. Two of its founders were, and their slaying of a tyrant was actually considered by, in their myths, to be the founding moment of their democracy. And this pro-tyrannicide ideology really became important during the Thirty Year Tyrants and the fall of the 400, around 410 BC, um, both of which resulted in the restoration of democracy amidst uh, much bloodshed. But it was the intervening period between these two tyrannies that is most interesting because what sort of resulted was a legal, what we could call a legal principle to actually coordinate democratic resistance against tyranny within Athens. And this was the so-called Oath of, of Demophantos that declared the uh, duty and the honour of all members for killing anyone who attempted to overthrow de democracy and install the tyranny. And there were similar oaths for tyrannicide adopted in other Greek um, allied democracies, Eritrea and Ilion in particular. There was a host of material rewards as well, hosted on tyrannicides. But interestingly, this pro-tyrannicide ideology was just not effective at home, but it was also used as an effective weapon, democratic powers against external enemies or external non-democratic enemies. So after pro-Macedonians forces staged anti-democratic coups in Aureus and Eritrea around 344 BC, Athenian democratic co coalition uh, launched strikes against the regimes of both cities, killed the tyrants there and re-established the democracies. And there's a similar case provided in the Reform Nation League in 280 BC, again supported, uh, that again opposed Macedonian-supported tyrants, overthrowing them and reinstoring democracies. So here, promoting democracy internationally is the final piece of the puzzle, helping to explain why the US has openly targeted Hussein and Gaddafi. And this, I think, reflects classical liberal theory of imperialism developed by J.S. Mill quite closely. So in Mill's thought, non-liberal or uncivilised states, because they don't comply with the basic fundamentals of international law, are denied sovereignty and all the benefits of non-intervention that that would usually entail. More importantly, I think, is that their non-compliance is actually interpreted by their liberal neighbours as something inherently dangerous and aggressive, <coughs> Uh, and so liberal states labour under this constant threat from their non-liberal neighbours and thereby grant themselves a licence to forms of protection that sovereign equality would otherwise say is impermissible, so specifically intervention in the affairs of the non-liberal state. And Mills openly believed that illiberal states would actually benefit from these um, interventions because they bring accelerated development. So it's these twin assumptions of non-liberal states, so their unlawfulness the, or their incivility, but also their developmental inferiority, inferiority that legitimises intervention as a standard liberal reaction to non-liberal states. And so in turn, these non-liberal states um, face what Jan calls the, an indefinite security dilemma, that they can be intervened with and at will by other liberal states. And this can be seen in other liberal approaches. Doyle talks about the same sort of impetus in Kant's perpetual peace uh, and Rawls' law of peoples um, has the same intolerance for outlaw or burdened societies who must be forced to change in order for liberal peoples to be made more safe and more secure. 
And so I think what this Millsian framework establishes is a specific validation for assassination when it's a means for regime change against those who fall short of the Millsian standard of civilization. So whether they're called totalitarians, tyrants, dictators, authoritarian regimes, rogue states, either way the sort of the logic is the same. Or very similar at least. And to confirm this, we don't need to look much further than the actual rhetoric deployed by the intervening powers in these cases. And I don't want to labour the obvious connection here with the findings of the church committee that we saw earlier on that slide. So the strikes on Hussein were premised on his failure to comply with the uh, international monitoring of its nuclear program, followed by allegations of an illegal weapons program. And these crimes were later coupled with um, his human rights abuses. So he was a threat and he was uncivilised. President Bush stated that the goals of the Iraq war, in sort of strict Millsian terms, to disarm Iraq, to free its people and to defend the world against a grave threat. Donald Rumsfeld, again, stated this Millsian approach. Our coalition came to Iraq for a purpose, to remove a regime that oppressed your people and threatened ours. Also, in the, the legal basis of, of Resolution 1973 mirrors the same sort of Millsian language of the need to coerce an uncivilised state. So this instrument justified intervention on two grounds, that the systematic attacks against the civilian population may constitute crimes against humanity, and that the situation in Libya constitutes a threat to international peace and security. And Obama in March uh, 2011 said um, that until Gaddafi steps down from power, Libya will remain dangerous. I have lots more examples, but points made and we're running out of time. So... To conclude, underlying, I think, both of the cases was an atypical uh, and momentary alignment between strategic interests and normative values, um, both of which were in the service of the sort of underlying logic of, of liberal international order, but also U.S. strategic and, and its democratic interests as well. These factors sort of only coalesced in the Hussein and Gaddafi cases, perfect storm, so to speak, which explains why assassinations have taken place in secret in the past, and it sort of also explains, and again, I'm only speculating here, and why probably why we won't see these assassinations uh, in Syria or Zimbabwe or Sudan. Um, it does suggest, uh, in my mind, an unsettled period for international order, um, in which the uh, ethical bars against direct violence on heads of government no, are no longer secure. This could be because the U.S. power is unchallenged at the moment, or so an example of you know might is right and the mighty do as they can. Um, or because the US considers its position so precarious that the cost of breaching the prohibition are deemed of little consequence when, when it's suffering so many threats. I think here the comparisons to the Greek and Roman examples are a bit alarming then because the emergence of open assassination in both cases occurred when Athens and Rome were in terminal decline and indeed these systems of world order um, soon disappeared. So something future re research will look into, hopefully. So, politically speaking, though, the justifications for both of the interventions and these attempted assassinations were sort of, have never been proven. Hussein's WNDs were mythical. Gaddafi's apparent genocide has never been proven, though there's still 8,000 people missing, but that's from um, fighters from both sides. And the question is, I guess, for, for R2P, whether it's been a misapplication, you know, the question of the real tragedy in Syria is not forthcoming because maybe this was a test case that went wrong. And the other concern is whether the interventions satisfied the Millsian standard itself, so whether they emancipated or further burdened those peoples that were oppressed by Gaddafi and Hussein, and whether the world has been made more or less secure. And I think neither Iraq nor Libya 
provide any evidence of the benefits of assassination. Islamic State covers vast territories of Iraq and has now expanded even into Libya, where they are actually in control of CERT, uh, and also most of Benghazi, where the problem started. So the problems with these assassination attempts was that they lacked the rebuilding phases. They had elections, but it's not the same thing. Rebuilding, I think, takes many decades of ongoing support from the international community. And without that, assassination is purely predatory. And, you know, um, last point, when just before the, the first bombs on Gaddafi, he actually wrote these letters, four letters to, to leaders, and the one to Obama was highly personalised, and it was laughed off at the time, but it said, what would you do if you found them, the Islamic State, controlling American cities with the power of weapons? Tell me how you would behave so that I could follow your example. And this was laughed off at the time, but just last month, Obama lamented that taking out Gaddafi and putting nothing in his place was the biggest mistake of his presidency. And ISIS remains in full control. So, assassination, very problematic. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Shannon. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.